You're listening to Well I Laughed, part two of the Industrial Revolution and its consequences, the invention of the pill. So today, (laughs) (laughs) I'm Grant, that's Maya, and today is part two of our series, The Industrial Revolution and Its Consequences. And I thought I had kept my story for the week a secret from Maya, and she informed me that at the last social gathering we were at together, I had talked about it with her several times, which is really classic me, because I just had kind of the blurb of an idea (laughs) at the time, and since then have written five pages of notes on it. Yeah, he not only told me what he was doing, he asked me if it was okay that that's what he was doing. Well, this week was your theme, right? Like, it was your vision, you Yeah, know? but we never tell each other these things. Sure, 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 sure. I hear that, too. It's also like, how do you follow the Unabomber, you know? Yeah, um, also, we are officially the most annoying people to have at dinner parties. <laughs> we, I, I mean, granted, we have, we usually see each other now in this setting where Correct. we're podcasting, so I feel like that's what we're used to talking about, but we got to that dinner party, any awkward silence immediately filled with something about the podcast. So do you guys want to know what the next episode's about? <laughs> Isn't it crazy that we're on Apple, Apple podcast right now? You guys know that I have a podcast. <laughs> Did you see the video clip that we posted? Crazy. Oh my god, the video clip we posted got over 500 views. And it did. I love that you love that. So, since you already know it, here's a little bit of a mystery for you and for our listeners. And this is how I'm going to start off tonight's story. Okay. Actually, sorry, one more thing. (laughs) Remember Casey's suggestion? Yes, I was just thinking about Casey's that, suggestion yeah. about how we go on tangents and sometimes those are fun. Yeah. Oh, I mean, always fun for us, sometimes fun for, for us. the listeners. Yeah, yeah. And that when we jump back to it, like to the main story, we should like cue Remind the audience them. back in. Yeah. Word for word, my mother's recommendation. <laughs> okay, well, I guess we have to follow that one. <laughs> and here's the thing. I was so self-conscious of that because i that's my biggest criticism for how I tell stories ever is I'm going to like build a world for you. Yeah. And my mom's like, I want the setup. I want the delivery. I, would I like, want the punchline. Yeah. I want to I know... I just want to know it. I want to go through that hero's journey with you. I don't need any of these side quests. Right. We have four podcast episodes recorded from this initial feedback to right now. So you're getting what you're getting. I know. It's so weird to hear people's reviews of our podcasts. And then if they have recommendations, be like, yeah. You'll have to wait a couple months. Though. <laughs> <laughs> On our, our drive to be as prepared as possible, we have actually kind of pushed everything to our you know, you and I could disappear a month before our, yeah. our listeners would know anything. Yeah, would know that we were dead. Which makes us the perfect victims for the perfect crime. I want to start off today's <laughs> story with a little mystery. Since Maya already knows what the topic is, but the listeners don't. Yeah. Uh, it's a story that I get from The Guardian in 2014. There's like a newspaper article that talks about it. It was talked about when I was going to college and taking anthropology classes. Oh, wow. A anthropologist is speaking to and this isn't a joke i promise an anthropologist (laughs) is speaking to her class and she holds up a picture Mm -hmm. and the picture is a ancient deer antler with 28 notches in it okay do you have any guess as to what that was used for like counting cycles yes yeah and so the anthropologist said this is man well perhaps woman's (laughs) first attempt at a like a period calendar yeah, tracker. And also like a period yeah. tracker and things like that. So today's story is going to be about reproductive health, specifically birth control, and how it's a consequence of the Industrial <laughs> Revolution. <laughs> See, here's the thing. If I didn't know it was about birth control, I would have never gotten that year. <laughs> thing. The 28 days might have, or the 28 notches mm. might have done something, but... Might have helped you out there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little yes. bit. Yes. Okay. So... I want to talk to you guys about the invention of the most prevalent form of modern birth control in the United States. And I realize that's a bunch of disclaimers, but the birth control pill, essentially, Mm -hmm. is the history that we're going to be getting into today. But first, but Grant, how does that relate to the Industrial Revolution? (laughs) Instead of waiting until we're 40 minutes in like I did. (laughs) Thank you for asking, first paragraph of my notes. (laughs) 
So there's a phenomenon that's been observed over the last 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. which is that developed economies, the families in these developed economies have much lower birth rates than those of developing or uh, more undeveloped economies. Okay. But essentially a wealthier a nation is and the higher per capita income of a woman specifically or a, a person who can give birth the less children they'll have and the longer they're going to delay having those children. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, and thank goodness for my handy notes, I listed them. So Ooh. women in developed countries have a lower birth rate than those in developing countries for a bunch of different reasons. One is fewer children die. die yeah. And so you don't have spares essentially that's the hyper quick way of yeah, saying yeah, that yeah, yeah. uh that there's an increased work burden on the parents outside of the home their work consumes them mm. a lot more i think both physically and creatively but then also tangentially related to that there's actually less work available for children <laughs> which is a good thing but it means that having a child means they're a lot less able to pay for themselves yeah. essentially which again is a good thing but when you hear it in that context it's like well why have a kid if i'm not gonna make a buck off of them you know especially in context of the industrial revolution and child labor and also that is my current opinion about having children so <laughs> but thanks to my lifestyle choices that's not gonna happen anytime soon and also his opinion on owning pets <laughs> Famously pet-averse. Uh, other things are also important to understand about why people who can give birth have fewer children in developed countries. For instance, they oftentimes get invested a lot more dollar amount resources into it. Mm. There's some kind of initial studies that families in developed countries have actually less community support around them to help oh, raise yeah. the child. Yeah, and sense. then finally, because these families or these birth-giving individuals in developed countries have greater economic freedom and mobility, they want to go see the world and don't want to be tied down to kids. That's me, which baby. Which I also get. <laughs> like every person we know. Honestly. <laughs> like, I just want to travel. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever watch the movie uh, Children of Earth? Or no, not mm -hmm. Children of Earth. We're going to have to cut this because I can't That's even fine. remember the name of it. <laughs> what was it about? Uh, the movie where no one is having children on Earth anymore. Oh. And then one woman gives birth. Children of Men. That's the children movie. Children of Men. Children of Men. Our social life is children of men. There's a whole bunch of people <laughs> not kids. giving any kids at all. <laughs> and going to Italy, which is actually an early plot point to Children of Men. That's fair. So the Industrial Revolution, for a variety of kind of carrot and stick measures, has discouraged large numbers of children. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, we are basically right at the replacement level, which is two children per birth-giving person yeah. to kind of replace you when you die. So the Industrial Revolution isn't necessarily responsible for the creation of the birth control pill, but it is responsible for the creation of the environment that would make it more prevalent, that would make it... Make an industry for birth Yeah, control. incentivizes it in a different way for it to come around to begin with. So, we're going to start our story in 1879 with the birth of a woman named Margaret Sanger. <gasps> Does that name sound familiar to that you That name all? sounds very familiar Do you to know me. why? I really can't put my finger on it right well, now. It's related to reproductive health, so a yeah. little Easter egg coming for Maya later yeah. on. Ma Margaret Sanger was born into this working class Irish Catholic family from what I found on the internet, which I got my sources from the American Experience, from Vox.com, V-O-X.com, <laughs> and from a healthcare clinic website and keeping that specifically ambiguous for right now. Margaret Sanger was born into Planned an Parenthood. Irish... Yeah, there it is. There she it founds is. Found Parenthood. She <laughs> founds Planned Parenthood. Margaret Sanger is one of 11 children born into an Irish Catholic working family in New York. Holy it's cow. also believed her mother had several other children that either passed away via miscarriage or died like very early on. So she comes from a large family and it sounds like there's even more. Mm -hmm. And as with all protagonists mm -hmm. in any story, her starts off with a tragedy. When Margaret was 19, 
Her mother, who at the time was just 50 years old, passes away. From Because she ran into the murder oh. trust. <laughs> I'm kidding. From, not in childbirth, but Margaret Sanger believed her entire life because of this pure exhaustion of birthing that many children. Honestly, freaking fair. Yes. The strain, here's the exact quote. Her mother had wasted away by the age of 50 from the strain of 11 childbirths and seven miscarriages. Seven Seven. miscarriages? Margaret's mother was pregnant for, had 18 pregnancies and died at the age of 50. Over her mother's coffin, Margaret Sanger looked at her father and said, you caused this. Mother is dead from having too many of your children. That Which is, is already a badass pretty dope. thing to say. Yeah, because it's what eighteen seventy is when she's born. So we are still before nineteen hundred. Yeah. One to have an opinion of men doing anything wrong is kind of controversial even is, today. Yeah, is so a problem. One hundred and twenty-five years ago, being like you caused this because of our the, of what you put our mother through. Yeah. Yes. So also a little historical setting at the time. So in addition to Margaret Sanger's own traumatic childhood, she is also coming up in an age when there's this law on the books called the Comstock Act. And the Comstock, C-O-M-S-T-O-C-K, Comstock Act, prohibited the post office from distributing basically a whole bunch of fun stuff from anything that could be considered lewd or pornographic including sex toys, which wild that they had to police that in 1879. <laughs> I mean, good for you. Toys. Get your kicks. I hope it's polished because they don't have industrial plastics at the time. Oh, God. But handcuffs are usually come in metal. But they also prohibit any use of the postal service for mailing or shipping any birth control products. And so she, her mother dies essentially from the stress of childbirth. And she lives in an era where even if you can manage to find birth control and live in a state where it is even legally allowed to be purchased, you cannot mail it. Not even across state lines, like you cannot put it in the mail or you'll go to jail. So, I'm just saying it sounds like things that are happening now. It really does, actually. And it's really important that the, one of the Supreme Court decisions overturned the Comstock, uh, the Comstock Act. But that decision is now being threatened by the current unelected Supreme Court that is, I mean, that's a whole separate tangent. <laughs> and I have all sorts of thoughts on it. Yeah. But basically, this story is both a consequence of the Industrial Revolution and an ominous forewarning <laughs> for what America's late 20s look like. Listen, if we're having another swinging 20s, I'd buy your condoms now, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's fair. And as much as I do love the Gatsby era aesthetic, right. I do not want to live in it. <laughs> uh, is it only because your English teacher forced force you to read The Great Gatsby? I... I mean, yes, but sure. I did actually love Fitzgerald and have read a lot of his stuff really? since high school. I was prepared for you to say Leonardo DiCaprio, which I love. I do and love I loved that. a lot of his work mm-hmm. and played Great Gatsby in the movie. I did love Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio's portrayal of the Great Gatsby, but I also just really, really loved the book. Speaking of New York, actually, my fantastic segue. Oh, you're welcome. After yelling at her father a couple <laughs> years later, like two or three. This woman's in her now early 20s. Okay. Margaret Sanger moves to New York, where she joins essentially the underground abortion services and helps women access, obtain, and then process back alley abortions. And that's kind of like a lot of the topics that we've discussed on this podcast. The people who are doing it aren't always necessarily allies, but view it as a chance to like make a quick buck from people in a vulnerable situation. So you're telling me the mafia did run... Do you remember how I told you the Stonewall Inn was a family restaurant before? <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> so Margaret Sanger is now in New York City in her early 20s, helping women process the trauma of having, even if they go well, a pretty traumatic abortion yeah. experience. They're and, very rarely enjoyable experiences, right. and that's what people don't understand. Especially when you're scared, it's super illegal, it's yeah. dangerous, and you are picking this option because... You know, while dangerous, perhaps 
you're weighing it against the dangers of having a child Mm -hmm. at that age. I mean, childbirth is still one of the most deadly things a woman can do. Yep. In addition to smoking. uh, (laughs) So these experiences, her mother passing away at an early age for both Margaret and her mother, her experience working in New York City with these back alley abortions, which is what the American Experience website called it, Mm -hmm. radicalizes her in a way that she says women... I mean, at the time, women, but people who are capable of giving birth need a way to control pregnancy. And she's one of the first people to start using the term birth control. And one website actually credited her with, like, kind of mainstreaming the phrase birth birth control control in the first place. That's crazy. Yes. So in 1921, sorry, 1914, she begins using the term birth control. And in 1921, she founds the American Birth Control League... And I love that about the early 20s. Everything was a league, you know? I do love a league. The only leagues I'm ever invited to today are like Dungeons and Dragons leagues. And absolutely zero hate there. <laughs> and they are actually remarkably civic-minded. But none of them are going to, like, you know, help pass the 18th Amendment or whatever. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. everything was a league back then. And I kind of love I, that. I want to be in a league. If you're in yeah. a league, it can't be Dungeons and Dragons because my improv skills are horrible. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> We've all seen her try to speak off the cuff on the podcast. Yeah. Well, no, they haven't because I've edited it out. If you ever hear a snap, that's what that was. Sometimes it takes me three tries to put together a sentence. Listen, I just wasn't in speech and debate, and it's taken listening to me talk on the podcast for hours to realize that I need to stop saying like and um, or I'm going to punch myself in the throat. I, however, am classically trained, which is why it doesn't make any sense that I keep saying the phrase, I don't know what to tell you, which apparently is my catchphrase. Yeah. Things the first three episodes taught me. (laughs) So in 1921, Margaret Singer, radical activist now. um, Queen shit. Absolutely founds the American Birth Control League, which will later become the Planned Parenthood Federation. And I also want to point out, for those of us who are like unsure about where we are in life, Margaret Sanger is 42 when she she founds this league. So she is absolutely midlife, mid-career, and she just does the like big thing that will then continue to launch her work elsewhere. Almost the age that her mom died. Correct. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. She's eight years old. The number of pregnancies and miscarriages she would have had if she had followed her mother, his mother's path this time, which, you know, yeah. talk about did generational trauma. You know, it did not come up in my research. <laughs> That's not to say that she didn't have it, but a lot of her... But it wasn't. Listen, yeah. Margaret Sanger's a complicated woman. I don't want it to sound like we're giving her a free pass. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into some of her history later on. Oh, yeah, 100%. So complicated stuff. Okay, but at the okay. age of 42, Margaret Sanger helps found the organization that will become Planned Parenthood, the American Birth Control League. And at the time, they are giving away some of the most cutting-edge birth control technology like the female let me get the correct diaphragm and the full length rubber condom now let me ask you these two questions when do you think well actually let me ask you which one do you think was invented first the diaphragm or the rubber condom the diaphragm yes mm-hmm. when do you think the diaphragm was created i don't uh no. 1842. It had been around for that long? Yes. What? The diaphragm is on its 80th. That's kind of your department, isn't it? Girl, I don't... Unless you're talking about, like... I don't know. Why do you think I would be an expert on be- female birth control? Why did you see the word diaphragm and not be like, I wonder what that is? I just kind of figured, like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe... Oh, gotcha. I bet it's a female condom. Yeah, that might be what it that is. That would make sense with the word diaphragm. Here's the I thing. Uh, Sanger had championed the diaphragm, but after promoting it for decades, she knew it was the least popular form of birth control. Mm. Uh, because even though it was highly effective, it was expensive and awkward, and most American women were too embarrassed to use it. That makes sense, yeah. So there was also the full-length rubber condom. Mm-hmm. Any guesses to when that was invented? The 1890s. 1869. What? I didn't even know they had rubber in 1869. <laughs> Which, like, that is, like, it is oil at that point. Like, yeah. they definitely probably do, you know? Oh, my God. 1869. Yeah, I know, right? 
Ew. Kind of like reshapes your mindset about like all those I, historical pieces, you know? Like desperately don't want to see what a rubber condom from the 1800s looked like. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but some lucky cultural anthropologist poking f- around oh, no. an old American city, I'm sure is going to find some, you know? I'm sure, I'm sure they're preserved somewhere, you know? I'm sure they have to know what they some look like. Some vintage shop in Iowa, right? <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, it's like in some red barn. is like, and these are diaphragms and rubbers from the 1870s. I really hope that's not true. Everything is in Iowa. <laughs> Including, I think, most Republican presidential candidates right now. Okay, oh so um, there's all sorts of stuff going on. These are popular forms of birth control that Margaret Sanger is promoting to try to encourage and empower women to mm-hmm. kind of take, or sorry, people who can give birth to take ownership over their reproduction. Couple things I want to add on to this, though. First, in a lot of U.S. states at the time, mm-hmm. any kind of birth control is illegal, especially if you are not married. It was like birth control is a thing that if you are married and have had the number of children you want and have like discussed it with your husband, then you can have birth control. But if you're just going to do it to, you know, enjoy those bodily urges that along with consent is a totally natural part of the human experience. You little skank. <laughs> And that's why it's also important to note during this time as well that Margaret Sanger is out here promoting kind of medical forms of birth control. But of course, communities, especially kind of through spoken word and things like that, Mm -hmm. there have been more naturally occurring ways that people who can give birth have managed pregnancy like you'll see some ancient not ancient but like old cookbooks that are like careful don't boil all these flowers together in a tea and drink it it might Mm. cause a miscarriage (sighs) kind of like careful don't do this exact thing you're researching for right now (laughs) which also weirdly tie back to prohibition that they also sold this like terrible tasting soda yeah and they're like don't put any barley in it or in 15 minutes it's beer (laughs) <laughs> and did you think in some places it then came with a pack of barley? Because yeah. it was not an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> They're like, and here's how you would make it if you do that kind of thing, but we can't endorse it. Exactly. <laughs> That's like me giving instructions to students the last two weeks of school. I certainly wouldn't turn in this last project and then stop bothering my teacher. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't understand that this would now be my final grade and he has other students who need more of his time. <laughs> I also certainly wouldn't thus cause a behavior problem taking away precious class time from the classmates who need it the most. The amount of hallway conversations I have to have in May where I'm like, why are you doing this? <laughs> Why well, I have so many other things to worry, to about, worry there. about, and you, student with a B plus, should not be one of them. <laughs> You're fine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's great until you have a student like one of the girls that I grew up with in elementary school. So I went Love to this unresolved childhood trauma. Oh. <laughs> Listen, I went to a rather small religious elementary school which no and that's why she's on a podcast today folks and i have mental health issues <laughs> um but there are like 30 of us per class basically and there's two classes per like uh grade and there are only f- four <laughs> asians in the entire thing that was as colorful as the classes got, if mm. you catch my drift. And I see your true colors. That's yeah. all we trademark. We, yeah. gotta, we gotta stop singing <laughs> but trademark they were songs. All, we were all very different kinds of Asians, not just in, like, ethnicity, but, like, in the way that we were raised, okay. right? And so, like, there was um, me and another Japanese-American. There was one from uh, Korea and then the other from Taiwan. The other Japanese-American and the... Korean girl were like there's pressure on them just because like there's just more pressure on like immigrant children I guess but like it wasn't as like intense I guess as particularly the Taiwanese girl the Taiwanese girl she was in a in band with us she played I think the clarinet and that class is 100% attendance based 
Like, there is no getting past that. And she got a B plus in band. <laughs> the mom came into class, or came into school, scheduled a sit-down appointment with mm-hmm. the principal mm-hmm. to argue her grade. Had she missed classes? I, I think it was, like, piano lessons or something, because she was she also was busy learning piano. music elsewhere? hmm Because, like, you could do piano lessons kind of through the school, and your piano teacher would come pick you up from class and take you to your piano lesson and bring you back. And I think that's what caused it. We love an involved parent. <laughs> and, like, I grew up in a relatively strict household just on, like, the premise of being raised by an Asian-American immigrant mom, right? Sure. But, like, this Taiwanese mom... We would occasionally go to volleyball camp together over the summers, and she, like, pulled my mom aside and was like, Maya said a curse word today. And my mom is thinking, oh. so oh. she's a narc, too. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom's thinking, oh, my God, this again. Like, why can't my daughter stand in trouble? Um, <laughs> and she goes, she said hell. Mm. And my mom goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> my mom goes, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> My mom used to run downtown for errands mm-hmm. to go drop something off at the office, and she would leave us in charge of the woman next door, who was my mother's best friend, and who we had a key to their house for. But like in the late 90s, early 2000s, that's like kind of controversial to do by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were definitely plenty of times I hadn't realized my mother was gone <laughs> until her car pulled back into like, the driveway. Oh, but Teresa Thomas, not a neglectful mother by any yeah. means. If I had walked into my house and could not find her and needed something, I would have just gone over to the Garrett's yeah. right away. One, on the assumption that my mom might be there. But two, because <laughs> Lisa was like a trusted adult, yeah. you know? Lisa drove me to school more in middle school than my own mom did. And is. that's how carpool works, you know? Yes, and true. <laughs> <laughs> and we need more of that. And the lack of that is why none of our friends have any kids right now. <laughs> if we all just lived on the same street, it'd be a lot easier. <laughs> we were talking about birth control. Yes. <laughs> Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back, kids. Let's take Casey and Teresa's advice. What were we talking about? And focus it back up. So the last thing I said was that she's out here trying to push and encourage people to use medical Mm -hmm. birth control and hit and miss kind of a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So she finally starts to pursue her dream of what she was calling at the time a magic pill of birth control. So she goes off and finds a doctor and kind of researcher one article called him a expert in reproduction which like okay um kind of (laughs) feels like something gross a frat dude would say yeah yeah and she goes off and finds a funder and this i thought was hilarious so the funder is Catherine mccormick heir to the international harvester fortune which yes maya trucks and tractors Paid for the birth control pill. Uh-huh. You know those like little red tractors with yeah. like the two big wheels and like a small one in the front yeah. that you'll see at like county fairs and stuff? Yeah. That's Harvester International's main product. So every time you see it, you can slap that bad boy and go, oh, you can fund so much birth control with this <laughs> thing right here. <laughs> She'll do. And so they launched this effort in the 1950s by the 1960s it gets approved and sanger lives long enough to see the pill be created Mm -hmm. and to see the groundbreaking supreme court case griswold v connecticut which did a bunch of different things but basically ensured that americans constitutionally have a right to privacy in the doctor's office right and that means including making decisions around birth control Mm -hmm. although the decision at the time was again narrowed down to being specifically just married couples, but it essentially overturns the Comstock Act, right. which means you can now ship dildos. That's what matters. <laughs> That's what matters. You don't have to go to a sex store now to order dildos. You can get that right off of Amazon. So, hate to transition like this, okay. but my father was <laughs> born three years before the Griswold v. Connecticut case was decided. Okay. So this is now very much like present history not past history so margaret sanger lives to found planned parenthood Mm -hmm. lives to see her dream of the kind of magic birth control pill be invented Mm -hmm. lives to see the ending of the comstock act Mm -hmm. and does not live to see her final dream implemented eugenics (laughs) 
and I'm not even joking. <laughs> which is the which is the second part of this episode. Margaret Sanger, bad woman, not a great, oh not God. a great person. Oh, also the pill, super super big ethical issues which is where the hot stuff really begins i don't know if we need to cut straight from it's pride month to margaret sanger eugenics expert but that's where we're jumping into it and i also feel it's important to say this now before we get into all of this Mm -hmm. the organization she founded planned parenthood released a statement i think a decade ago kind of around there and it was a longer statement but i clipped these three things Mm -hmm. so everything i'm about to say Planned Parenthood has released a statement on. So Planned Parenthood say this. Margaret Sanger, you know, helped usher in the birth control pill and reproduction, reproductive health. Sanger also believed in eugenics. This is now a direct quote. An inherently racist and ableist ideology that labeled certain people unfit to have children. Eugenics is the theory that society can be approved through planned breeding of desirable traits like intelligence and industriousness. Margaret Sanger was so intent on her mission to advocate for birth control that she chose to align herself with ideologies and organizations that were explicitly ableist and white supremacist. In doing so, she undermined reproductive freedom and caused irreparable damage to the health and lives of generations of black people, Latino people, indigenous people, immigrants, people with disabilities, people with low incomes, and many others. Her beliefs opened the door for people opposed to reproductive freedom, including safe and legal abortions, to make false and unfounded claims that Planned Parenthood today has a racist agenda. Planned Parenthood denounces Margaret Sanger's belief in eugenics. First of all, I love that they made a statement about that because that's very important to know, but also crazy. Oh, I know. That someone with like those liberal views back in that time also had those beliefs. Yes, 100%. Well, I think they make a really interesting point, which is that her advocacy, which for her fell in line with these racist, ableist concepts, Mm -hmm. thus then endangered what was really the heart of her work, which was access to birth control and access to abortion care. Right. Which, if I were talking about this in one of my debate classes right now, a kid would pipe up and say, damn, mister, that's like top 10 anime betrayals right there. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we're going to talk about some serious stuff, but some quality timing. We can find the humor in it still, too. So, let's talk about some of the insane shit that Margaret Sanger got into, who, by the way, at this point is like in her 60s and 70s and 80s, and she chases this dream. Oh, she's really just... Correct, which is why at the start of the episode, I called her the protagonist not the hero. And that ah, was intentional, a little Easter ay. egg. Okay, so our story begins in the 1950s when Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger works together with Gregory Pincus um, and the founder, the heir of Harvester International, Catherine McCormick, uh-huh. to begin research on a magic birth control pill. It's happening in Massachusetts, and it's the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology. Okay. So now this information that I'm about to share with you comes from Vox.com, and mm-hmm. specifically with their interview uh, with the author of the book, The Birth of the Pill. Okay. Do not have the author's first and last name. Good job. So let's jump into it. Okay. <laughs> so... There's not a lot of necessarily, like, coverage on the science behind developing the pill at first. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the, like, headline-grabbing things. Oh, yeah, no. But it's essentially this assumption that this doctor had that two hormones at a higher level in a person with reproductive organs, like, like, would then drive down their fertility. Right. And so they developed this pill. They 
then have to test it. Oh, no. And it's the middle of the 20th century, so it's still illegal to distribute contraceptives in most states. Okay. This presented challenges for researchers who were trying to develop it, and since it was illegal to distribute their product to women who would need this. So, as the author of the book, The Birth of the Pill, said, they don't go over the law, they go under it. They begin to pass it off to women who are seeking fertility treatments. And they basically told them, it'll make you really infertile, but then you might get pregnant after that. So they are misleading women initially. They're like, I would like to have a baby. Please help me. And remember, this guy is an expert on reproduction, frat daddy professor, whatever. <laughs> Self-proclaimed. Correct. Uh, professor Pincus is like an expert on fertility. So they're like, take this. It's going to like really drive you down and they kind of like boost you back up. And then you might be able to have a baby afterwards. So it sounds like they pitched it as essentially a juice cleanse to women yeah. in the late 1950s. And of course, it did one of those two things. It drove their reproductive health super, super, super down. But also, perhaps kind of obviously, um, those aren't the best test subjects for a birth control pill because they're already featuring fertility issues. So they basically took a group of women who wanted babies, gave them something they were sure wasn't going to let them have babies. And then when they didn't have any babies, they were like, like, we're on to something. I imagine it's a little bit like when they were developing uh, medication for high blood pressure and instead gave old men boners. And I'm talking about the birth of Viagra. They're like, we're on to something. But instead of it being a happy accident, it was a like tragic, trauma-inducing experience for women. Yes. And so you're going to hear a lot of these kind of details in the next couple minutes. And it does shade a medication that really is transformative for a lot of people today, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So they eventually get a group of women Mm -hmm. to sign up for the test. They get 130 women. Are these all women that are, like, trying to get pregnant? Yeah, um, I don't think they're trying to get pregnant. I think it's women kind of now maybe specifically seeking an alternative to birth control. Okay. We don't know a lot about these individual 130 women. Yeah, an alternative to birth control. Like, they still want to take birth control, but perhaps the diaphragm and rubber condoms aren't working. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. In the 1950s and 60s, so... If a woman doesn't want to have kids anymore, but her husband does, legally, she's in a dubious situation. Yeah. And so they get 130 women to start taking these pills, but they know 130 women isn't enough samples in their study to get FDA approval. So they don't lie. They Mm. instead turn to good old-fashioned misogyny and an assumption that the all-male FDA department at the time isn't going to understand women's reproductive health. Oh, my God. So then here comes a quote. To make his study sound more impressive, Professor Pincus stopped talking about the number of women participating in his trial. In fact, he skipped talking about women altogether. Instead, he talked about the number of menstrual cycles observed in the experiments. Quote, in 1,279 cycles, during which the regimen of treatment was meticulously followed, there was not a single pregnancy. The study sounded way bigger than it actually was. Yeah, what? Yeah, they gave out 40,000 pills but only to 100 women who were taking them, because you got to take them yeah. every day. Right. It could have never been approved if they handed in that research today. This is a drug that they're proposing for healthy people to take every day. It's not like an aspirin yeah, that you take or anything once. else. Yeah, So, I mean, if, I mean, ultimately having access to birth control is a good thing from a human's health perspective. Yeah. So this is going to be the one shady thing they do in the story where I'm like, mm, I get it. Because they're like, yeah, there was over, you know, 1,200 menstrual cycles and not a single pregnancy. That sounds bulletproof. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like it. there's no failure at all. And so they took this show on the road. They took this show on the road to a jurisdiction, still in the United States, but that allowed um, birth control, and that was Puerto Rico. And they went to Puerto Rico because in some of the impoverished communities in Puerto Rico, there was a small population of women interested and willing to take a medication that might protect them from pregnancy. Yeah. But... Since they're kind of having to do it on the down low, they are continuing to find 
it hard to get test subjects, so they turn to, again, another super shady way to get research participants. The researches ultimately boil down to manipulating women, specifically by recruiting college students and threatening them with bad grades if they didn't participate in the trial. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. The author of the book at the time says the fact that all of this research is being done through this way, crazier. It's like, this is ultimately a really good thing, but it also mirrors like the history of gynecology in the United States, which is that it just manipulates hyper vulnerable women. It lies to women. It uses misogyny at both ends by threatening women who do not have the same amount of social power, but then using it to advocate for the research to people who know even less about like the reproductive systems of people who can give birth. So it's shady all around. And it's Margaret Sanger who's believing this. And also Margaret Sanger is kind of now maybe trying to start to push birth control a little bit because she's afraid low income communities, especially full of people of color, might be having just too many Many kids. And if we can slow that down with involuntary experiments, then all the better. But this is also to say this is not the only medical study that's been done on unsuspecting communities like are you familiar with the u.s federal government's syphilis tests oh where they infected a bunch of men in alabama with syphilis and then observed them untreated for like i think a decade or more just to see what it would do to the body and they chose that group because they knew the state local and federal government would not not be interested in protecting them that's absolutely freaking crazy, especially consider and Margaret Sanger's whole view that like people in poor areas or in like racially diverse areas are going right. to be having more kids. Like that's still a thing today, and a lot of that is generational wealth issues right. because those areas tend to not have access to Planned Parenthood or to uh, like active abortions or they don't feel safe getting contraceptives. So like it's still the same. Right. Shit. So after lying to women seeking help to become more fertile and having a baby, mm-hmm. after manipulating women in Puerto Rico, either through academics or if they were a low-income woman in Puerto Rico to take the pill, they turned to their final test group, and they run a series of tests in a mental hospital in New York where they give medication to uh, psychiatric patients and then just follow it there. And in the New York mental hospital cases, they give the medication to both men and women. Oh. Here's what they have to say about that. They essentially had no checks or balances when it came to running these experiments in psychiatric facilities. There are no patient advocates. There's essentially no watchdogs. If you can get in good with like the leading physician at the place, you basically have permission to do whatever you want. And then even worse, as the book quotes, some attendants would then essentially abuse the relationships they developed with these people to get them to say yes without any knowledgeable consent. So it'd be like, hey, I'm going to give you the shot if that's okay. They'd be like, sure, doctor, whatsoever, because they are their caretakers. Mm -hmm. So there were two different things that came out of these birth control studies out of the psychiatric hospital. First, the women who were being given the drugs They decided that the data was ultimately not that good because they weren't entirely sure if the women were, A, having sexual intercourse to begin with, and B, they're under other medication or sometimes their own conditions meant that their menstrual cycles were more irregular. So a lot of that data wasn't useful. But then that they were giving the birth control to men was especially confusing because Margaret Sanger is officially on the record saying she's not looking for a male birth control option. So if you're wondering in part why, Margaret Sanger was not interested in researching it. And they saw some changes in like men's genitalia after a half a year. It was like a little bit smaller, but they had a hard time pinning that on anything. Regardless of what the results were, it didn't make any sense because they weren't trying to create a drug for men to take. The drug that they were giving them was in no way like designed for them to take it. And then this is, I mean, just like kind of cherry on top of it all. They ultimately stopped giving the 
birth control pills to the men of the psychiatric facility because they were having a hard time coercing them to give them sperm samples to test what their fertility was like. What the fuck? I know. Oh I my know. God. For a pill that is so ubiquitous today and yeah. used by millions of people to control yeah. their menstrual cycles, it's history of testing and development That's is nuts. Absolutely Today, insane. obviously, it's safe. Yeah. There's millions, dare I say, billions of data points to prove that it's safe. Yeah. Hundreds of international countries allow it. It's been studied again and again by the FDA. Like, it, this is not to ultimately sow seeds of doubt or conspiracy around the birth yeah. control pill today yeah. amongst its users, but it is to say, like, like a recognition of the amount of abuse that others went through to develop it. Yeah. And so I, I have, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, I just feel like, I don't know, even though something is good today, right. the number of regulations and processes that like a medication has to go through to get approval right. today is insane. Right. And it wasn't that way in back in the day. Like the FDA was around, but it wasn't as prevalent. Right. And so, I don't know, just... Well, and also that it was a medication specifically for women when there's no women professionals at the FDA, Mm. no women health experts at the FDA at the time. And that's a misogyny. Absolutely it is. And so, okay. This does make a lot of sense as to, I always wondered why, I just always figured it was misogyny that caused them to develop to develop birth control for women first right but it actually makes way more sense now that it was margaret sanger being like no women need to have this power in their hands and like have a way to like say no i'm not getting pregnant again right and that is and a way that was actually if you could like hide the pills or whatever not obvious to the men in your lives yeah and wasn't also then thus removable in that act Mm -hmm. that should you be assaulted Mm-hmm. against your will not consent whatever you want to you know whatever the like exact dynamic is you had the protection of the birth control in that moment and it couldn't be taken away yeah like a diaphragm or a condom right, be right, able right. to mm-hmm. so a couple of end notes okay. on all of this as we kind of usher ourselves into the modern age so first is about access right a daily pill that people who want to regulate their menstrual cycles can take Mm -hmm. uh, revolutionized birth control in the american public and kind of internationally Mm -hmm. it destigmatized it a lot of times it became nice for people to have just in case a lot of people enjoyed the new freedoms and protections that it uh, guaranteed you know it wasn't something that you had to remember or bring with you in the moment there was kind of like no touching it after the deed was done yeah and it made it and the fact that a female presenting person can take it in secret. Amazing. Yes, and also kind of revolutionary in places where women are less empowered. Like, for instance, there's one study out of Ethiopia that they had to send specifically women to go talk to other women about taking birth control. And mm-hmm. in 2000, married women in birth con- uh, married women in Ethiopia, only 5% of them were taking birth control, as opposed to today, 40% of married women in Ethiopia take some kind of birth control yeah Yeah. so it does an incredible job of universalizing it and here's the thing for men or people who don't have ovaries that's yeah ovaries uteruses it's beneficial to us too because when everyone is involved in like a sexual health discussion you get all sorts of other ways to prevent pregnancies Mm -hmm. and also other diseases like syphilis gonorrhea herpes HIV AIDS, right? That I don't think it's necessarily an accident mm-hmm. that there's a birth control pill and then 50, 60 years later, there's a once daily oral pill you can take to prevent HIV infection. Yeah. That it like then mainstream that as a normal thing for people to mm-hmm. do. The second takeaway, and I think this is even more interesting, especially as this is being recorded at the start of Pride Month. <laughs> Let's talk about the Catholic Church for a second, which does not (laughs) believe in or support the use of contraception. That's God's will. Right. Well, not according to Professor Pincus, devout Roman Catholic, as he is quoted (laughs) in the book. Um, He didn't have to be sold on this research. Point blank. He believed the Catholic Church was wrong and that sex 
was a very important part of marriage. It wasn't just for procreation. He saw the challenges the patients faced with unplanned pregnancies, and he was able to reconcile his faiths and his personal belief. He was very brave to make this stand on the pill, and it lent credibility. Instead of having that one scientist, you had this handsome, conservative-looking, practicing Catholic saying Catholics should be fine using it. And a man. So it's, yeah. That's crazy. In an era in which he is empowered to have the exact opposite attitude about women's reproduction. And so I'm just saying that apparently in the 1950s, (laughs) your own personal dogma and a willingness to let people live their lives were two opposing thoughts one could comfortably hold in their own brain. (laughs) Jesus wore a dress. (laughs) (laughs) He hang out with men, drank a bunch of wine, kind of enjoyed feet. That sounds pretty gay to me. I'm kidding. And to our, probably my mom and any other religious people, we respect your beliefs. I just also expect then for you not to... Criminalize my life. <laughs> Criminalize my life. Uh, yeah. And it's also important to remember that people don't always take birth control for birth control because I started birth control um, when I was 15. It's not like I was having sex at 15, mind you. It was because I had periods that lasted like nine to 10 days. Gosh, that's like a third of a deer antler. <laughs> From the start of the story, hey, the 28 notches. <laughs> um, and was just, like, my mood was just uncontrolled. And granted, I was probably depressed and not on medication, so that maybe had something to do with it. But also, like, my mood was way more unstable when I was on my period, which meant a third of my life I was a menace to society. And my mother said, we're putting you on the pill. <laughs> so this is you mellowed out. Yeah, this is me, Mel. And you can okay. ask Casey. There was like two months. Okay, ago. okay. There was like a month that I lost my birth control. I like went on a couple trips and I like didn't have my birth control with me. So I just said, you know what? Like, screw it. I'm just going to like wait until my period happens and then like fresh start. Sure. A fucking nightmare. That was like the worst period I've had in like a decade. And Casey was like, I was so mad and irritated and depressed. And Casey was like, what is happening? And I was like, I'm so so sorry. Part of me wants to be like, you know, Maya, I think Margaret Sanger would be proud of you for taking control of your reproductive health. But then she would realize you're multiracial and then probably be really disappointed. <laughs> sorry, mom. <laughs> sorry, Margaret Sanger, I mean. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this whole conversation is very illuminating because as a person and as a queer person specifically, <laughs> like birth control... I'm not an expert not you. on it, you know? <laughs> I think it's great, you know? I think, you know, that a thousand flowers bloom. I do, however, have one little story to kind okay. of share on this topic okay, 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 while okay. we're talking about birth control. <laughs> um, and also maybe low-key the industrial revolution. So this story is going to start off serious, but it's funny and has a happy ending, I promise. Okay. So uh, a couple years ago, I discovered a lump in the male reproductive area of my body. And I'm fortunate enough to have a job that has health insurance and to live in a city that has access to medical facilities. I mean, already at the start of this story, it's like not a great day for me individually. But I have more resources than I think a lot of people do to like handle the crisis. And I'm absolutely tripping. I am freaking out. (laughs) So I go to a doctor. They're like, we don't think it's cancer, but we can't tell you it's not cancer. So we're going to send you to an ultrasound technician. And then that area of my body gets ultrasounded. (laughs) Which I don't have this as a running list, but if it was first or second on the list, okay? (laughs) And I am this funny because I had a weird and embarrassing childhood, okay? (laughs) And this was, I'm like 24 in this story, 25 maybe, and I am like mortified, embarrassed at having to get ultrasounded in that area. Anyways, I get a call a couple of days later and I like rush out of my classroom to the bathroom and I answer the phone and they go, is this Mr. Thomas? (gasps) And I go, yes, it is. And then the woman on the line goes, 
we have good news and we have bad news. <laughs> you can't start a call I like that know. to a patient that thinks they might have cancer. And I'm like, I, I th- listen, I'm sorry. But part of me in that moment is like, I've already shaved my head, so I, I think chemo like won't be as noticeable. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm like preparing, preparing, yeah. I'm preparing for them yeah. to tell me that it's treatable. Is yeah, like yeah. what I'm preparing for. And she says it's not cancer, and I have this like huge <laughs> oh sigh of relief to the point where I almost drop the phone. I forget this bad news coming. Yeah. I uh, she goes so you know she explains what the lump is. It's not cancerous. It's fine. Yeah. But like where it is in my body, she then says this part, and she goes, it it will make a harder potentially for you to have children naturally and I laugh so hard that now when I tell this story I always like to say which is totally fine with me I hadn't planned on using that feature anyways (laughs) it's like finding out your car has heated seats but you live in Mexico City you know oh I didn't know that could do that well I'm probably never going to use it anyway so that's fine That's it? So it's two pieces of good news? <laughs> so not only am I going to be probably not fertile. Oh, those years I've been so careful. <laughs> so that's You're... why none of my partners had gotten pregnant. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> You're telling me I can't pass on these genetics. That's ridiculous. Well, I just, you know, hate to put another burden on my straight, heterosexual, Christian male younger brother's shoulders. <laughs> We're gonna have to toss this one to him. Sorry, kid. <laughs> I do love him to death. He's wonderful. He's an ally. <laughs> and he has a lot of check marks to hit because I'm not doing yeah. it for the family. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting married this August. And I looked at I looked at my parents and I said, Oh, we better do it up big. This might be the only marriage that happens in this family. <laughs> my sister and I are fun. That's the important <laughs> thing to know. My sister and I are fun. <laughs> no, she is a lovely person big. too. I will I will be the eccentric uncle, you know. <laughs> I have recently decided to uh, transition from saying, no, I don't want kids, to saying, this line dies with me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm an only child, and... Children of men. (laughs) (laughs) I will not be passing on these genetics. There's no need for that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean... We live two interesting of lives to, yeah. to have to accommodate a high chair. No, I'm kidding. And I've met more people in my life that are older and that have never had kids, that, and I want to be them. Sure. More than anything else. I think, and this so. is the empowering thing. I mean, I know we've been, like, pretty sarcastic and oh, flippant yeah, I mean, about this. There are a handful of people in my life who have had kids and are fulfilled by it mm-hmm. and, like, love it. And I love that. And I'm super appreciative yeah. that my parents ultimately decided to start a family. <laughs> I think, at least for myself personally, in thinking about what I want, maybe what I have to give, like, where my energies best lie, yeah. I don't, at the time, currently know if... Being a parent is one of those things. But again, this is kind of like the liberating part of queerness is mm-hmm. I get to work on my own timeline. And I think true. seeing a lot of my friends here in the city, especially, the best way I can describe it is a lot of them have also started to experience the liberating impacts of being queer, even if they're not yeah. queer, of just like decoupling any sense of timeline from your own hopes, dreams, and uh Aspirations. Yeah, I think heterosexual couples have like such a such so much pressure on them because right. immediately, even if you are super liberal, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, you'll go to family events and people will be like, "So when's the first kid coming?" Right. And it's like, Susan, I don't want to talk about this with you. I bought a house with a fenced-in backyard, and everyone was like, "So when you getting a dog?" And it's like, <laughs> "Tell me you don't know me unless you know." He wanted a garden, and I want to point out that his garden boxes are conveniently large enough to hide a body <laughs> a short body body they top out at five feet long i know but you could you could curl them up in the fetal position why have you thought about that? oh because we're gonna gone girl casey yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't say that out loud honestly here's the thing it'll have to happen in the fall because i have a really beautiful patch of cilantro growing no, and that'll be great it'll yeah. be good fertilizer come spring okay but i eat a lot of that produce so I'm going to start a whole second podcast where I just talk about my gardening. Maybe a three-episode arc. I don't know. Is that the theme of <laughs> that next could be week? our Patreon. Garden? <laughs> Garden time with Grant. Garden time with Grant. <laughs> Donate enough to pay for our publishing platform, and we'll send <laughs> you something. Hey! We'll send you a fresh Maybe bushel if... of cilantro. 
act fast before I plant something on top of it. Before we bury our first body. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But until then, um, please keep tuning in because yeah. uh, we're actually really enjoying this now, I think. Yeah, and it's been super fun hearing everybody's reaction to the podcast. And yeah. tell your friends because I would like more listeners that I don't immediately know correct 100 mm-hmm. percent. would love yeah. a hint of mystery and all a of hint this. of mystery and that i'm not being i'm not going to be judged the next time i go to a dinner party <laughs> which i already am oh, that happened way before we started this podcast yeah that's fine <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah follow us on instagram at well i laughed and we have a tiktok now Ooh. at well i laughed uh and then if you have any suggestions or comments concerns about grant's health Keep them to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, email them directly to me. <laughs> She'll uh, work them in a conversation. At wellilaughedpod at gmail.com. Are we Midwesterners? Because this is the longest goodbye I have yeah. ever seen. Okay, well, <laughs> I laughed at the beginning and at the end and not when I found out Margaret Sanger um, liked eugenics. Right. Otherwise, we hope you laughed too, or at least learned something. And text us tomorrow morning when you take your birth control about how you're feeling better now. Yeah. But until then. Bye. 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 Thank you.